Today we're going to look at some verses in the book of Mark, chapter 8. And so I invite you to turn with me to that portion of God's Word, the book of Mark, chapter 8. And let me begin by, by stating at the outset what I pray we'll discover as we look at these verses what I pray we'll take to heart as we look at these verses. And I want to state it as follows. The relationship between radical grace and complete surrender. Let me repeat it. The relationship between radical grace and complete surrender. That's our goal. That is our target. That based on... This passage of scripture in Mark chapter 8, that by the time we leave here this morning, we will be clear, crystal clear, on the relationship between these two things, radical grace on the one hand, and complete surrender on the other. Now, to give your minds, uh, to give us a framework so that we are we have something to work with as, as we probe this relationship and as we get into the details of our text. Uh, I, w- I want to mention a, uh, a novel, uh, well-known certainly to many of us, uh, Les Miserables. How many of you have heard of that novel? How many of you read it by, by Victor Hugo? Fascinating work of literature and a fascinating look into the, the state of man and the heart of man. In the book, there are two main characters. Uh, The first is Valjean, excuse my French, a a criminal. The second second is Javert, a constable. And so these are the the two central figures, the two main characters, polar opposites. On the one hand, Valjean, a criminal. On the other hand, Javert, a constable. Uh, Valjean a criminal who spends close to 20 years in prison. And upon his release, he is a hardened man, a man who is full of spite and a man who is full of hate. And at one point, having been released from from prison, he's looking for a place to spend the evening, to pass the night. And he's in a town, and he ends up in the home of, uh, of the local bishop. And the local bishop, out of the kindness of his heart, Knowing that Valjean is a convict, recently released from prison, it gives him a place to sleep. During the night, in the dead of the night, Valjean assaults the bishop, steals his silver, and flees. He's apprehended. He's arrested by soldiers. And the soldiers bring Valjean back to the bishop's house. To the soldier's surprise, and to Valjean's surprise, the bishop simply states there's been a misunderstanding. That Valjean hasn't stolen the silver, but in actual fact, he gave the silver to him. Not only did he give him the silver, but he gave him other articles from his house which he had forgotten to take with him, and he lavishes more upon him. At that moment, Valjean, a hardened criminal, full of hate, comes face to face with radical grace. That grace conquers him. That grace transforms him, whereby he surrenders. And from that day forward, he lives a life of self-denial. Now, the polar opposite, Javert, a constable, a man who has lived a respectable life, a man who has lived an upright life, and a man who knew Valjean, when he was a prisoner in jail, and a man, a constable, who sets off after Valjean because Valjean has broken his parole. And Javert, he is ruthless in his pursuit of Valjean to the point where he is cruel, to the point where he is brutal, but he is committed to a paradigm. He is committed to a worldview, this idea of reward and punishment. And at one point, they actually encounter one another. And on this occasion, Javert is a prisoner of rebels and is facing an execution squad. Valjean rescues him and sets him free. 
At that moment, Javert comes face to face with what? Radical grace. But it does not conquer him. Nor does it transform him. There is no surrender. There is no denial of self. Why? Because Javert is committed to the world of reward and punishment. And he refuses to surrender self when faced with such radical grace. And rather than surrender self, and rather than let go of his paradigm, rather than let go of his own self-righteousness, he is so full of himself to such a degree that he ends up committing suicide. And so here you have two men, polar opposites, two men who confront radical grace. And in the case of Valjean, it conquers him. It transforms him. And there is a life of surrender. In the case of Javert, there is resistance. There is a predisposition, a pre-commitment to a works-based righteousness. And he will not accept this grace. He will not surrender to it. And he would rather commit the most selfish act of all, which is to take his own life. Keep it in mind, friends. Keep in mind this relationship between radical grace and complete surrender. With that paradigm, I pray right there in the forefront of your minds, the relationship between the two and the predicament of these two men and how they are polar opposites and their responses drastically different. With that in mind, come with me now to Mark chapter 8. And beginning in verse 27, we're going to look at three fundamentals. Three fundamentals as we wrestle with this relationship. On the one hand, between radical grace and the other hand, complete, full surrender. Three fundamentals. We all know what a fundamental is. A fundamental is an essential part of a foundation. And so if you want to build an edifice, you lay a foundation. And you put the edifice on top of it. If the foundation isn't laid properly, if the foundation is missing an essential part that is a fundamental, the edifice will sooner or later fall down. And so we're interested here in fundamentals, the fundamentals of the Christian faith. The Christian faith, we can compare it to an edifice, a house, a house built on a firm foundation. And in these verses, the Lord Jesus emphasizes three fundamentals. And let me mention them for you as we read the text. Fundamental number one is this, who Jesus is. Look at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. That is fundamental number one, who Jesus is. Fundamental number two, what Jesus does, beginning in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That is fundamental number two, what Jesus does. And now for fundamental number three, what Jesus requires, beginning in verse 34. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
three fundamentals. Now let's go back and look at each one of them individually. The first one, it encompasses verses 27 through 30, who Jesus is. And so he's traveling again with the 12, the disciples. They're in a region known as Caesarea Philippi, back in Jewish territory. After having spent some months in Gentile territory, and as they walk together, as they travel together, the Lord Jesus turns to his disciples and he throws out a a telling question. Who do people say that I am? And the response is threefold. Well, some think you're John the Baptist. Where did they get such an idea? Possibly from Herod. Do you remember Herod murdered John the Baptist? And then when Herod heard about Jesus, he thought that perhaps it was John the Baptist risen from the dead. And so evidently some people have followed him in these wild speculations and they actually think Jesus somehow is John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Why would they say Elijah? You turn back to the Old Testament, the very last book, the book of Malachi, and the very last prophecy in the Old Testament, it concerns whom? It concerns Elijah. It concerns the return of Elijah prior to the day of the Lord. And so some people think the day of the Lord is upon us, and people know that Elijah is supposed to return. They haven't understood that if John the Baptist was actually Elijah, Elijah come in, in, in spirit, and they think that Jesus perhaps is this promised figure, this promised forerunner prior to the kingdom of God, Elijah. And still others think that he is one of the prophets. Mark doesn't mention it. Matthew does in the parallel account, that's Matthew chapter 16, that uh, Jeremiah is a fan favorite. That when they think he's one of the prophets, a lot of people actually think he's Jeremiah. Why? Interesting little tidbit of information. According to the book of 2 Maccabees, apocryphal, right? we don't accept it as part of scripture, but certainly some historical validity. According to the second book of Maccabees, I think it's chapter 3, at the time of the Babylonian invasion, so 500, 600 years prior to Christ, when the Babylonians invaded and Nebuchadnezzar overthrew Jerusalem, prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant and hid it. And according to this tradition, Jeremiah would return prior to the coming of God's kingdom to reveal where the Ark of the Covenant was hidden. And so some actually think that he is... Jeremiah, what is significant is this. No one thinks he's the Christ. It's not even an option. The disciples, there isn't isn't a fourth option here. Uh, Some say you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Elijah. Some think you're one of the prophets. And among those prophets, we we hear a lot of talk concerning Jeremiah. They don't say it, but this is what is implied. No one thinks you're the Christ. No one is speaking of you as the promised Messiah. Jesus accepts it, face value, and then turns again to the disciples, but you, plural, who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking on behalf of the twelve, on behalf of the entire band, says what? Right there in verse 29, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now again, in the parallel account, Matthew chapter 16, Matthew tells us that Peter, Peter actually says a little more. It's implied in this phrase, this is enough, you are the Christ. But he actually said a little more. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, should, if you've been accompanying this series, should send us all the way back to the beginning. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, where Mark says what? This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. He does not use the word Christ again until here. And so he is drawing a direct line from chapter 1, verse 1, to right here, chapter 8, verse 29. This book I am writing, it is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Who is he? He is the Christ, the Son of God. And in these first eight chapters, what is he demonstrating? He is demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the Son of God. And not only is he demonstrating that, but he is demonstrating for us how the disciples gradually come to an awareness of this truth. 
Remember, in just in the preceding incident, the preceding verses, what do we have? We have Jesus healing a blind man, but he, he heals him, interestingly enough, in two stages. And in that first stage, he restores partial sight, whereby the blind man says, I see men, but they're like trees walking. And it is only in the second stage that he restores their sight fully. And he is showing the disciples, he is telling the disciples, this is what you're like. This is what you've been like for the past two years. Partial sight. You you, you look out and you see men, but they're like trees walking. You know I'm different. You know there's something going on here, something more than meets the eye. But it is only now, at this point, after a couple of years with him, the scales completely fall away. The blinders are off. They have eyes to see. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so that is Mark's purpose, his intention in these first eight chapters. He brings them to that point, that declaration. The Lord Jesus brings them to that declaration, affirming his identity, affirming who he is. And then what does he do in verse 30? He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Don't tell anyone else. They're still blind. They're still thinking of the Messiah as some sort of political figure. I have not come as a political figure. I have not come to throw off the Roman yoke, Roman dominion. I have not come to do anything like that. You keep it to yourselves. They aren't ready for it. And he charges them to tell no one. This, friends, is the first fundamental. Who Jesus is. Is. He himself asks the question, Who do you say that I am? And we must answer. We must answer. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, coined a word decades ago, trilemma, you know, from dilemma, trilemma. And by that, he simply meant that when it comes to the identity of Jesus, we face A trilemma, tri, three, meaning what? There are are only three options. He is Lord, he is lunatic, or he is liar. He is a trilemma, the Lord Jesus. Given what he does and given what he says, there are no other options on the table. There are no other choices. Jesus is either one, Lord, he is two, lunatic, or he is three, liar. Lewis penned the following words. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Either he was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Who do you say that I am? This is fundamental, number one. And we better get it right. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Why is this so fundamental? Numerous reasons. How much time you got? I won't take long. Let me give you the chief reason. Simply this. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That is why this is so important. J.I. Packer refers to that verse. That's 1 Timothy 2.5. Packer calls that the sum and substance of Scripture. That single verse. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The sum and substance of Scripture. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. If he were only God, he could not have died for us. And if he were only man, he could not have atoned for us. You see, the identity and the personhood of the Lord Jesus is foundational and fundamental to the gospel. That as he hangs on Calvary's cross and is suspended between heaven and earth, he dies as as a man, yet it is his deity that lends infinite value to that sacrifice, whereby he atones for our sin. Fundamental number one, 
who Jesus is. Fundamental number two, what Jesus does. And this includes verses 31, 32, and 33. And look at what happens at the outset of verse 31. Jesus speaks uh, to, uh, Mark describes the Lord Jesus speaking to the disciples. He began to teach them what? That the Son of Man, notice this little word, it's a beautiful word, perhaps the most important word in these verses, must suffer many things. And must, that, verb, that word must, it, it, it encompasses, it, it covers everything that follows. He must suffer many things and must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and must be killed and must, after three days, rise again. You see, to this point, let me remind you, I just said it a few moments ago, to this point, from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 8, verse 29, Mark is primarily concerned about what? He is primarily concerned about Jesus' identity, who he is. He is the Christ, the Son of God. The disciples now get it. The blinders are off. They see. They fully understand who he is. But they're only halfway there. And from this point right through to the end of the book, the emphasis is no longer on who Jesus is. The emphasis is on what? What he does. Because you see, the disciples, like their countrymen, when they think of the Lord Jesus, when they think of the Messiah, when they think of the Christ, when they think of the Son of God, when they think of the one pointed to in the Old Testament, the anointed one, the promised one, when they think of that individual, they think in terms of what? A political deliverer. They think in terms of an individual who is going to come, God's anointed, God's Messiah, God's King. And here is what he's going to do. He's going to establish his earthly power in the city of Jerusalem from where he is going to reign over the entire world. That is the expectation they have. That is the mental framework with which they are working. And the Lord Jesus now drops a bomb into their midst. And what does he say? The Son of Man has come to suffer. They don't have the minds to compute that. And for the rest of the book, Jesus is teaching them. They're blind. They now understand who he is. But they are blind as to why he has come. And in the next few chapters, he is going to state it explicitly, plainly, clearly. The Son of Man has come to die. The Son of Man has come to suffer. And the Son of Man has come to rise again. Do not miss the terminology, the phrase, the description that is used there, the Son of Man. Mark uses it, Christ uses it in reference to himself. At times we hear that phrase, Son of Man, and we we think in terms of Son of Man, Son of God. Okay, Son of God emphasizes his deity. Son of Man emphasizes his humanity. Not true. Son of Man has an Old Testament context. That phrase, Son of Man, is lifted out of Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has one of his crazy visions. I mean, it's pretty spectacular. And in this vision, he sees this sea, and out of the sea emerges four beasts. And these beasts represent the kingdoms of man, the kingdoms of the earth. And the first beast is like a lion. It's the Babylonian Empire. And the second beast is like a bear. It's the Persian Empire. And the third beast is like a leopard. It's the Greek Empire. And then the fourth beast, it's not like anything. It's just terrible with ten horns going every which direction. It's the Roman Empire and subsequent empires. And then what does Daniel see? He sees that power and authority is ripped from these kingdoms. And it is given to another. And now listen to what Daniel sees. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. That is what the disciples are expecting right then. That is what the Jews are anticipating right then. This Messiah, this Christ, This promised one of whom we read, of whom we learn in the Old Testament scriptures, he is a king. He will be an eternal king. He will be a conquering king. He will establish a kingdom, a rule, a dominion that will never end. If Jesus is the Messiah, then this is what he has come for right now. He has come to rally the troops. 
He has come to gather an army. He has come to throw off our oppressors, the Romans. He has come to reestablish Israel in all its glory of the Davidic kingdom, whereby it will extend not merely over the land, but over the entire world, all the nations. This is why he has come. And what does Jesus say? Uh, The Son of Man? Oh, as soon as they hear that, that's, that's just not thrown out there. They have a context in which to place that, this prophecy back in Daniel 7. They hear that. Yes, the Son of Man, what's coming? He must suffer. He must suffer. He must die. He must be killed. And he must rise again. Let me state it plainly. This is repugnant to the disciples. They can't compute it. They do not have the mental framework in which to fit this. Hence Peter's response in verse 32. And he, that is Jesus, said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Don't miss this. The word in the Greek translated rebuke is the same word term that is used when Jesus rebukes demons. What is Peter doing? He is vehemently trying to silence Jesus. We grasp who you are. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. We grasp that. Peter and the disciples are still clueless as to why he has come. This talk of dying and not fighting. This talk of suffering and not reigning. This talk of rising again. They, don't, they can't see it. They don't see it. Peter refuses to see it. And he rebukes Jesus. Now, Peter's vehemency with which he rebukes Jesus sets the context for what? Jesus' rebuke of Peter. Look at verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Wait for it. And said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What does that mean? Here's the starting point. And, and please don't tune out, follow through this. Satan's goal is not the cross. Many of us were reared thinking it was. And many of the passion plays and movies have not helped. Even one of my favorite books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, has not helped. Because it portrays the witch as sort of triumphing at, at Aslan's death. And then the resurrection sort of catches the witch, surprised, what's going on here? And and many, many of us, I dare say, have this mindset that the crucifixion, well, that was Satan's day, Satan's triumph, but something glorious happened on resurrection day that Satan never saw coming. Let me repeat, Satan's goal is not the cross. That is why back in the wilderness, one of the temptations, what does he offer Jesus? Prostrate yourself, bow down, and I will give you kingdoms of the earth. What's he implying? There's no need for what? There's no need for the suffering. There is no need for the rejection. There is no need for the humiliation. There is no need for the pain. There is no need for the anguish. There is another way. And now here, Peter Peter echoes the devil's temptation, rebuking the Lord Jesus. And at that moment, in uttering those words, Peter isn't possessed. I don't believe for one moment Satan is physically present. But at that moment, Peter aligns himself unwittingly with the devil's temptation. Yes, the devil will put it into Judas to betray the Lord Jesus. Yes, I don't doubt for a moment that the devil is active behind all that physical abuse and suffering that the Lord Jesus experiences. But the devil does not want the Lord Jesus on the cross thinking if I can only kill him, he's out of the way. In all of that suffering, he is tempting him. He is tempting him to do what? To go against the will of his father. That's the temptation. And that's why Jesus responds to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things, or as Matthew says it, the interests of God, but on the things of You see, Peter, I have come. And yes, the devil, my enemy, is actively trying to derail this program. 
He does not want this to come to fruition. He knows what this means. But understand, Peter, understand my disciples, and this is what I'm going to reveal now through to the end of of my ministry. Uh, What I do, I have come for a reason. Yes, you now understand who I am, the Christ, the Son of the living God, but you still do not understand why I am here. I must suffer. I must be killed. And I must rise again. Why? Oh, the reasons. Let me give you three quickly. The first is legal. Jesus must suffer to satisfy God's law. Jesus must, don't lose sight of that word, must, it's absolutely necessary. He must suffer to satisfy God's law. After we're finished here this morning, I jump in my car and I back out without paying any attention and back into someone's vehicle out there. Lots of damage. There is a debt to be paid, right? Either you pay it if you happen to own that vehicle or I pay it. But someone's got to pay it. There's a debt. Friends, we have a debt. We have a heavy debt, a heavy burden. The wages, the debt of sin is death. Someone must pay it. Here's the wonder of the gospel. God, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, has paid it. Paul states it beautifully, wonderfully, in his epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 3. God condemns sin in the flesh. Condemned, punished. God condemned, God punished sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? That of the Lord Jesus, the incarnation, the Christ, the Son of the living God. That as he was suspended on Calvary's cross... And our sin was imputed and reckoned to him. He was judged accordingly, was condemned accordingly, was punished accordingly. I must suffer. I must be killed. I must rise again. Why? He must suffer in order to satisfy God's law. Second reason is this. It's cosmic. He must suffer to renew God's creation. By virtue of the fall, the creation has been subjected to futility. God himself has subjected the entire created order to futility. The creation exists under a curse. And yet the day is coming, says Paul in Romans 8, that it will be set free from its bondage to decay when we are enthroned with Christ. And that freedom, that releasing, that liberation from its bondage to decay, to futility, to the curse, is as a direct result of Christ's finished work at Calvary's cross. He must suffer cosmically. He must suffer to renew God's creation. Let me give you a third reason. It is covenantal. Jesus must suffer to reveal God's love. Jesus must suffer to reveal God's love. Hear the words of Revelation 13.8. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. It's a reference to the beast. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Understand the implications of that, friend. There is a book. Uh, There is a book that has a title. The book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. There is a book that was written before the foundation of the world. And there is a book with names in it. Here we move away from the the personal. And we stand way back to the covenantal. And we behold this covenant, this eternal covenant between God the Father and God the Son whereby God the Father sends God the Son, His Son. And God the Son obeys and submits and comes, submitting Himself to the will of the Father. Why? There is a book. And there is a book with names in it. And the salvation of these people is contingent upon the Father sending The Son submitting. The Son who is the Lamb of God that has been slain. Contingent upon his death at Calvary's cross. Why? We're stepping way back, way up here. Why in the eternal plan of God? For the revelation of his love. For the demonstration of his 
grace for the manifestation of his mercy. Oh, my 12, you've come a long way. It's been two years. And uh, you were like, sort of like blind men walking, partial sight, not quite clear who I was, knowing, knowing I, I was someone but not quite getting it. Now you see I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now we need to spend a little more time together, my 12. Because, yes, you understand now who I am, but you are clueless as to why I have come. Here's why I have come. I, and friend, please remember this word. I must suffer. And I must die, be killed. And I must rise again. Why? First reason is legal. He must suffer to satisfy God's law. Second reason is cosmic. He must suffer to renew God's creation. And the third reason is covenantal. He must suffer to reveal God's love. So the first fundamental rested on a question. Who do you say that I am? We must answer. This second fundamental rests on a revelation. The Son of Man must suffer. We must believe. J.C. Ryle penned many years ago, error on many points is only a skin disease. We spoke of this a little bit in the adult Sunday school this morning. Theological issues, doctrinal issues that are of primary importance, secondary importance. That's what J.C. Ryle is emphasizing here. Error on many points is only a skin disease. Error about Christ's death is a disease of the heart. Here, let us take our stand. The sum of all our hopes must be that Christ has died for us. That's beautiful. The sum of all our hopes is that Christ has died for us. Let me clarify that a little bit because, you know, sometimes we jump to that a little, a little too quickly. I know that may seem hard to, hard to believe, but we do. At times we jump a little too quickly to the fact that Christ has died for us. The starting point, the starting point is to understand this. That before we can appreciate the cross as something done for us, we must appreciate the cross as something done by us. Did you catch that? Before we can really grasp it, and before we can really take it in, and before we can appreciate it in in its magnitude, we must come to grips with this undeniable fact that before we can appreciate the cross as something done for us, We must appreciate the cross as something done by us. It was our sin that nailed him there. Martin Luther, he he described this reality uh, wonderfully, saying that we all, as Christians, carry the nails of Calvary in our pocket. That's something. As believers, we carry the nails of Calvary in our pocket. In the first place, the cross is something done by us, our sin. When we grasp that, oh, the beauty of this, that the cross is something Christ has done for us, whereby we believe. Fundamental number three, what Jesus requires. And here we move into verses 34 through 38. Let me just review, make sure you're still with me. Fundamental number one, who Jesus is. That's a question. Who do you say that I am? We must answer. Fundamental number two, what Jesus does, that is a revelation. The Son of Man must die. We must believe. Now we come to fundamental number three, what Jesus requires. And here we have an invitation. An invitation. At the outset, I want us us to understand, and I, I don't want to create any debate or confusion with people, but I think this is important to say. It strikes me as important anyway, that as I read this invitation, I'm, I'm struck by how different it is from most invitations we hear in churches today. Most invitations in churches today are along these lines. Invite Jesus into your heart. When everybody's not looking and I'm praying, lift your hand if you want to accept Jesus. Come to Jesus, he'll fill the hole in the bottom of your heart. Try Jesus on for try, you know, for size. He'll solve your problems. It strikes me how the vast majority 
of the invitations we hear in churches today have absolutely nothing to do with Christ's own invitation as recorded in these verses. That strikes me as very odd. And so listen carefully to Christ's invitation to sinners. It is threefold, three aspects. The first involves self-denying, verse 34. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them. So this is the first aspect, self-denying. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Deny himself. What does he mean? He simply means that when we understand who Jesus is, when we understand what Jesus has done, there is no longer any room for self. There is no longer any room for self-love. There is no longer any room for self-righteousness. There is no longer any room for selfish ambition. There is no longer any room for emphasis on self. Why? You think of the descriptions that are given in the Gospels, how the Lord Jesus speaks of those who are heavy and weary, heavy laden and weary. Or he speaks of those who are poor in spirit. He, thinks of those, he speaks of those who, who are meek and sorrowful for their sin. You see, to deny self is to understand precisely what we are in the sight of a holy God and to come to him in poverty of spirit, surrendering self. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, it is to feel, it is to feel that we are nothing and that we have nothing and that we look to God in utter submission to him and in utter dependence upon him and his grace and mercy, self-denying. Second aspect, cross-bearing, still in verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Now we hear that, and we might think, oh, he's pointing us to Calvary and giving himself as an example. He's not. At this point, he hasn't said anything about how he's going to die. He hasn't revealed anything concerning his death on the cross. What would the disciples think when they heard him utter these words, deny himself and take up his cross? Here's what they would think. Here's what they would visualize. These are grown men. They have seen tens of thousands of their countrymen crucified. They have seen tens of thousands of their countrymen dead, dying, and decaying, lining the pathways and the roadways and the highways throughout Israel crucified by the occupying Roman forces. And not only have they seen these men dying, but prior to their death, they have seen these men lugging, carrying, dragging their cross to the place of execution. What is he impressing upon them? He is impressing upon them that if you would come after me, complete self-denial, an abandonment of self, and a willingness to take up a cross, That is the willingness to lose all. Let me phrase it in slightly different terms, nuanced, and I pray we'll we'll get it. He, he He is stating the following, that if you would come after me, you must understand that what I am offering and who I am and the gospel itself is worth losing everything for. That's what he's saying. He is saying that I am of such inestimable value. He is declaring that what I will accomplish at Calvary is of of such immeasurable worth. He is emphasizing that the gospel is of such splendor that there is nothing in this world, nothing in this life that can compare. And there will be of necessity not compulsion, but of necessity in the light of who he is and what he has done, there will be of necessity a willingness to lose all life itself to gain him. That's the invitation, folks. Not give Jesus on for a try. Put him on for a try. Not come to Jesus, he'll fill a little hole in the bottom of your heart. Not come to Jesus and he'll solve all your problems. No, understand who he is, friend. Understand what he has done, friend. And understand there is nothing on this earth that can compare to the glories of the gospel. And understand this. It is more than worth dying for. That's his point. That's his invitation. He doesn't stop there. If 
anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, self-deny, take up his cross, cross-bearing, and follow me, Christ obeying. During his earthly ministry, he himself declared it, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Well, the sequence, it's natural, they flow into each other. That when I appreciate who he is, and I appreciate what he has done, I surrender self, deny self. There is nothing left in me. When I grasp that, I hold on to the gospel and appreciate its value, and I'm willing to lose everything and more besides for the possession of the gospel. And when that is firmly in place, my heart's desire and my longing and my ambition is pretty straightforward. What is it? It's to follow him. His will becomes my will. I echo his cry. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Now follow it through, friend. Please follow it through and see the connections. Fundamental number one, who Jesus is. There's a question. Who do you say that I am? We must answer. We better get it right. Fundamental number two, what Jesus does. It consists of a revelation. The Son of Man must die. We must believe. Fundamental number three, what Jesus requires. Consists of an invitation. Deny yourself, carry your cross, and follow me. We must. We must follow. Now, where did I begin? I began with Les Miserables. Valjean and Javert. Two men who at different stages and moments in their lives come face to face with what? Radical grace. In the case of Valjean, as he experiences that radical grace, what is the result? It conquers him. It transforms him. And he surrenders all. In the case of Javert, what's the response? He has no place in his heart for such grace. He will not be conquered by it. He will not be transformed by it. Why? He is committed to the world of reward and punishment. He is committed to his own world of self-righteousness. And he would rather commit the most selfish act of all in taking in his life than deal with this grace that compels surrender. Do you get where I'm going with this? I, I, it's crystal clear in my mind. I, oh, I pray it's crystal clear in your mind. We come to this text and you, and you go through these three fundamentals. Number one, who Jesus is. Number two, what Jesus does. Number three, what Jesus requires. Do you understand, friend, that number three isn't a duty? Number three isn't really even a choice we make. If I hear number one and I hear number two, and then my response to number three, what Jesus requires is, well... Exactly. What does that, what does that actually got to look like? Give me a list of 14 things with subpoints that I can do and can't do. Uh, I guess that means I need to sacrifice a little more time, a little more money, a little more energy, uh, a little more effort. I guess that means I'm obliged to do this. But somebody tell me exactly what I'm obliged to do so that I can somehow do that, so that I know that I am in actual fact following the Lord Jesus. If that's my approach to the text, if that is your approach to the text, understand, friend, zone in, give me your attention, please. You have not understood the gospel. We have not grasped the gospel. Radical grace, the relationship between radical grace and complete surrender. I understand who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I understand what he does. He dies for my putrid sin on Calvary's cross and bears the wrath of Almighty God in my stead. When that is grass, friend, that melts us. And it conquers self. It transforms self. And we surrender. Self-denying. Cross-bearing. Christ-obeying. 
They are not duties. They are simply the delight of a heart that has been transformed by radical grace. We sang a song years ago. I often pull out these little songs I sang as a little boy. I'd forgotten all about this one until this past week. And uh, it sums up wonderfully these three fundamentals and what, what I'm trying to convey. And so listen to these words carefully. With this, with this we will conclude. Give me a sight, O Savior, of thy wondrous love to me, of the love that brought thee down to earth to die on Calvary. Was it the nails, O Savior, that bound thee to the tree? Nay, t'was thine everlasting love, thy love for me, for me. O wonder of all wonders, that through thy death for me, my open sins, my secret sins, can all forgiven be. Then melt my heart, O Savior. Bend me, yea, break me down, until I own thee conqueror and Lord and sovereign crown. O make me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. That's our prayer this morning, our Father. That by the proclamation of your word and by the instrumentality of your spirit, you would indeed work in every heart and in every mind and instill in us a wonder at the foot of the cross, a wonder as to the magnitude of your love, a wonder as to the severity of your judgment, of your punishment, and a wonder of all wonders that there our sin is born in full by the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. May your love melt us. May your compassion grip us. May your mercy transform us. And this we ask in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.